Your boss doesn't own your career, the company doesn't own it, your mentor, no, you own it. You would never spend thousands of dollars for an airline ticket, pack your bags, put the dog in the kennel, right? Hold your mail, head to the airport, and then strap in the seatbelt on the plane and look at the pilot and say, so, where are we going anyway? But we do that with our careers all the time. We spend all this money on education and training and conferences and books and you know, coaches and all these things to help our career. And then we wait for somebody else to tell us what to do. No, you own your career. I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespot.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women, author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich, and host of The Wallet. Shelly Archambault was one of the first ever black female CEOs in the tech industry. She's a Silicon Valley leader, a board member, and author of the inspiring book, Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms. From the very early start of her career, Shelly had a clear vision. She wanted to be the CEO. Through her ambition, resilience, and continuous pursuit of growth, she achieved her aspirations and is now inspiring others to take ownership of their careers and achieve their dreams. Today on The Wallet, I asked Shelly about the importance of goal setting and how it has been instrumental in her success. She talks about how to get intentional about your goals, build timelines, why planning helps you stay on track, and why risk and opportunity are two sides of the same coin. You'll find out how to build confidence when it comes to negotiating your salary and how Shelly has navigated asking for more in her career, even when it felt uncomfortable. We discuss Shelly's relationship with money and the role it plays in her life, and how her upbringing formed the money mindset she has kept with her to this day. I'd also just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, Pension B. Pension B has helped over 400,000 customers be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. With Pension B, you can manage your pension like you manage your bank account, check your real-time balance, see your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals all from the palm of your hand. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK-based account manager, or as Pension B calls them, Beekeeper. You can sign up to Pension B today with the names of your old pension providers in just five minutes. And if you're self-employed, you can start a new pension from scratch. As always with investments, your capital is at risk. Please note that the information made available on this podcast is provided for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. If you have any questions, you should seek advice from an independent financial advisor. Hi, Shelley. How are you? Good, thanks. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your extraordinary journey and inspire a few, few more women along the way. But I wanted to ask you by just introducing yourself for people who don't know you uh, yet. Uh, sure. So I am a longtime technology person. <laughs> so I've been in the tech industry my entire career. I started out early with the aspiration of running a company one day and indeed rose through the ranks of IBM um, to be one of the first uh, black female executives sent overseas on an international assignment. I was one of the youngest executives named. I was running a multi-billion dollar division for IBM, but it wasn't clear that I was going to have a chance to truly compete for the CEO job. So I ended up making the hard decision to leave IBM 
and worked my way to Silicon Valley, where after two chief marketing officer and EVP of sales jobs um, at public companies, I got the opportunity to indeed become CEO of what became MetricStream. And we turned MetricStream from a broken technology company into a global market leader in governance, risk, and compliance. And now I passed the baton a couple of years back, and now I serve on public boards, uh, both for-profit as well as non-profit, advise companies, universities, and try to inspire people to achieve their aspirations, which is why I also authored a book called Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms. And I've read your book. It's excellent. And it's giving us such a good, you know, view of, you know, what happened, what have you done uh, in this like crazy journey. And, and we'll talk about setting goals and we'll talk about money today. But first, in the book, you've been talking about these early years and your mom and your mom telling you that life was not fair and that you should stay strong. Can you tell me a few things about these early years and how that shaped maybe, I mean, who you are today and what you did in your, in your life? Definitely. You know, Emily, I grew up in elementary school in the 60s in the United States. And at that time, there was a lot of racial strife going on. People were fighting for civil rights and for as many people that felt there should be equal opportunity and equal rights, you had just as many that didn't. And as a little black girl, frankly, growing up in this environment, and moving around a lot and in a lot of living in a lot of places where I was the only black kid, you know, in this class or in the school sometimes, people just made it very clear that they didn't necessarily have much expectations for me, didn't necessarily want me around. And so this whole notion of life not being fair was just drilled into my head. You know, you come home from school and something happened to you. Somebody treated you badly. You didn't get what you deserved. You know, they pushed you, whatever it might be. And you say, mom, mom, this happened, this happened. And mom would say, you know, Shelly, life's not fair. It's not fair. So you just have to figure out what you're going to do about it. And as a kid, you're kind of like, what do you mean life's not fair? I mean, it's supposed to be fair, right? You get one, I get one, right? Come on, right? And so what that did was it really just set the stage that, gosh, if I just do what everybody else does, then I'm probably not going to get what I want out of life. So I've got to figure out how to improve my odds. And being intentional you know, setting plans, trying to figure out what is it I want now? How can I prove my odds? What can I do? Just became the way that I approached life. And frankly, I continued that all the way forward. And it did indeed enable me to achieve the goals and aspirations I set out for myself. Because you had this goal to be the CEO of a company very young. You know, you, you achieved it. You were one of the tech's first, you know, black female CEO. So, you know, I, I guess, you know, very strange to be, you know, on your own at the, you know, at the top and setting up an, you know, excellent example. But how did that all happen? I mean, when did you decide, okay, I want to be the CEO and this is going to be the path I'm going to take? It was a fateful conversation with a high school guidance counselor. So again, in the States, about your junior year, you typically have the obligatory conversation with a guidance counselor on, are you planning to go to college? What do you want to do, right, et cetera? And I knew I wanted to go to college because that was drilled into my head as a kid. So I want to go to college. She said, well, what do you want to do after college? And I said, I have no idea. And she said, well, what do you like to do? And I said, oh, that's easy. I love running clubs and organizations. You know, I'm in everything, American Field Service, the French Club, National Honor Society, you know, et cetera, you name it. And I liked leading it. And she said, well, you know, clubs and business are kind of very similar. You put people together to get things done. And I thought, oh, 
great. If I like running clubs, then I like running a business. So I decided then I wanted to run a business. And when I looked up, Emily, the people running businesses were called CEOs. And I said, great, I'm going to be a CEO. <laughs> so literally, I was that audacious, but also naive. Did I know what that actually meant? No, but it was a goal. And so it gave me something to focus on. And, and having this goal and this very clear vision, how did you actually shape your vision? Because you're talking about, you know, high school, it can take years and, and even, you know, people can never find what they want to do in life. So how did you get this very clear vision from very early on? It was interesting. In some respects, I just picked it. You know, I, I tell people all the time, I think it's poor advice when people are told, oh, you know, do what you love. It puts so much pressure. How do you know what you love? I mean, you're 16, you're 18, you're 20, you're 24. I mean, it's not like you've had a ton of experience and you've tried all these different things. So all of a sudden you have all this pressure. Oh my God, I got to figure out what I love so I can do what I love. And there are so many different options and how do I know? And I think what happens is people get kind of get frozen, right? They can't pick anything because there's too many choices. And instead it's like, no, honestly, just pick it. I didn't spend months trying to ask, decide, am I going to be a CEO? Am I, not gonna, I just picked it. I'm like, all right, that sounds good. So what I tell people is if you don't know exactly what you want to do, it's okay. It's okay. Then treat your career kind of like you do college, right? Or school, which is you don't get to choose everything you take, right? You take a whole set of core items as a foundation. Well, if you're not sure what you want to do in your career, then do what's in demand, right? Pick something that is in demand. Why? Well, you don't know anyway. So you might as well try something that people actually want to pay you to do. That way you get a chance to build skills, build experience. And if you decide, mm, maybe I don't like this industry or maybe this isn't the right role for me. Well, the good news is you've developed skills that are marketable. They're in demand. You can use those to pivot to something else. The kids don't get stuck. Too many people just get stuck trying to figure out what is it I want to do? What is it I want to do? And then they don't move forward. No, move forward build skills, gain experiences that will inform you as you move forward, what you like, what you don't like. And I guess we, I mean, there's a big parallel with, you know, entrepreneurship. And I'm sure in your CEO life, it's trying to take decisions quickly, even if maybe, you know, make a mistake and it's, it's not the right decision. Is, it, is this your approach also? And was this your approach during your, your career? Oh, yes. I learned a lesson very early in my career. And thank goodness I did. I was in sales. I was in sales with IBM. And I was given a new client, met with the client, found out a need they had, was working on a proposal. But I wanted this to be perfect because it's a new client. I want to set a good impression, right, et cetera. So, you know, in the first week, I kind of had it together, but I wanted to do a bit more work, a bit more research, really put final touches, get people's input. So I worked on another week or so. I got it done and it was beautiful. Took it and met with the customer, gave them the proposal. He looked at it, we reviewed it. He said, wow, Shelley, this is great. You know, justification, the whole bit. I just wish I'd had this about a week ago because I just got my budget cut and I'm not going to be able to move forward now. And I thought, well, a week ago, it was in pretty good shape a week ago, right? So what I've learned was, you know, 75% good beats 100% perfect and slow every day of the week. Much better to be fast and then iterate. Doesn't have to be perfect right? Get it in, get it in front of people, have discussions, make it better, but at least you're moving forward. Don't wait to perfection and then bring it in because it's too slow. So yes, 75% fast, 
beats 100% perfect and slow every day of the week. So that's one secret of your success. Maybe talking about goals and your vision, how do you set your goals? When do you review your goals and how do you maintain focus to you know, achieve these goals one after the other and maybe they're going to change and you're going to take a different direction? But how do you do this planning phase uh, for, for yourself? Mm, you know, it's, it's actually quite straightforward. There are a few questions I ask myself. So the first is, what is it I'm trying to either achieve or to impact or to create? Right? And that becomes the goal. What is it I'm trying to do? Second, what has to be true for me to actually do it? And in this regard, Emily, that's when you have to go do your research. I don't know what has to be true. When I joined IBM with the objective of I wanted to be CEO of IBM, I didn't know what it took to be CEO. So what did I do? I did my research. I looked at who have the CEOs been? What career paths did they have? What skill sets, what jobs, what I did all this research. And then I used that research to say, okay, how do I make it true for me? And then that becomes the plan, right? So what is it I want to do? What has to be true for me to do it? And then how do I make it true? And the answers to those questions enable me to build out a plan and then staying focused on the plan. I tell people all the time, keep your eye on the prize. What is it you're trying to do? It is so easy to get distracted with shiny, cool things over here, over there. But remember, what is the goal? What is it you're trying to do? You know, write it down, right? Write it down. And then periodically you can take a look to say, hey, am I on track? And by the way, when you set a goal, it's not enough just to say, I, I want to be a CEO or I want to be a director of marketing or I want to be a VP of engineering or whatever it happens to be. It's important to actually build a timeline. And the reason it's important to build a timeline is you don't know if you're on track or not, if you haven't set timelines for yourself. And if you haven't, what happens is you get comfortable. Companies get comfortable. And next thing you know, you're 35 years old, you're 42 years old, you're 51 years old, and you're like, gosh, I'm just not where I thought I would be, right? So you have to have the timeline to make sure that you're staying on track. Are goals set up for yourself and it's you only who can achieve them? Or do you need some external factors or are some things that are against you? How can you, you know, just thrive on your own? Yes. So first of all, I don't believe that anyone, anyone achieves anything of significance all by themselves. Nobody totally takes help. So if you look at me and what I've done, do not think that I did this all by myself. I did not. I took a lot of help. I got a lot of support. You know, if anything, I believe that asking for help is a strength. It is not a weakness. Most people I find that if asked in the right way are happy to be helpful. So take the help. And how does that help show up? My goodness, in every way, whether it's help in terms of advice or counsel, if it's getting mentorship, if it's the support people around you, folks that are cheering you on. I mean, there's just so many ways in which we all need help and support along the way. Because remember what I said earlier, I didn't think the odds were in my favor. Well, you know what? If you look around, the odds aren't in the favor of for a lot of people. So therefore, try to be intentional with what you do. That's what building a plan is all about. Be intentional and then let people help you. I can't tell you the number of people I come across that have a goal or an aspiration And when I ask them, oh, that's great. Well, who else knows that that's what you're trying to do? 
And they kind of look at me blankly, like, what do you mean? Who else knows? I'm like, well, who else knows that you want to achieve X, Y, or Z? And many times it's, well, no one, or maybe their spouse, you know, or maybe a parent or maybe, no, no, no. It's important to tell everyone. I believe you have to tell the universe what it is that you want so that the universe can help you. You never know who can be helpful. So give people a chance by letting them know what you aspire to, what you're trying to achieve. And then how do you, you take risks and embrace failure? Mm, Risk-taking is huge. That's why it's in the subtitle of my book, right? Unapologetically ambitious. Take risks, break barriers, and create success on your own terms. Risk and reward, risk and opportunity, they're two sides of the same coin. If you aren't taking risks, you just aren't going to get the opportunities. So you have to take risks. And what are risks? A risk is basically doing something where you feel uncomfortable, right? I mean, it's at its very foundation. It's doing something that you feel uncomfortable about. Well, guess what? When you feel uncomfortable, it means you are learning. You're learning. You feel uncomfortable because you don't know everything, right? You're not sure exactly how to approach it. You're not sure. About, that's what makes you uncomfortable. Well, being uncomfortable means you're learning and learning and growing is what you need to do constantly to build yourself, right? To invest in yourself. You know, I tell people all the time, if you haven't been uncomfortable in your role for like, you know, 30 days or 45 days, then odds are you're kind of coasting. And if you're coasting, well, cars only coast downhill, right? You're doing one. You're either growing and moving up or you're coasting and moving down. So get uncomfortable, take risks, take those jobs where, oh, maybe I'm not quite sure I know everything about this job. Of course you don't. Whenever you get a new opportunity, nobody expects that you know everything. You're starting at the bottom of the learning curve ladder. That's okay. That happens every time. The key is get on that ladder, learn as much as you can, as quickly as you can, so you can move up the ladder and get on the next one, right? Are you still uncomfortable today or looking for this uncomfortable position? I mean, I'm sure... You know, the transition from being a CEO to a board member is not, is not an easy one. Do you still get imposter syndrome? And how do, you, how do you handle these situations? Oh, the answer is yes, I do. You know, I've suffered from imposter syndrome my entire life. Now, it happens less frequently than it did earlier in my career, but it still happens. I mean, I remember when I was joining the Verizon board. All right, now, here I am. I've, at the time, I'd been a CEO for over a decade. I've been serving on public boards for, I don't know, seven or eight years. And I'm now being invited into the Verizon boardroom. And I get ready to walk into the room and I'm fine. And I open the door and I look in and it's like, oh my God, that's the CEO of Walgreens. There's the CEO of Aetna. That's the former secretary of transportation under Clinton. Oh my God, that's the former chair of the SEC. How am I going to go toe-to-toe with these people? Do I really belong? I mean, that whole imposter syndrome, that voice that tells you, you don't know what you're doing. Wait till they figure out that, you know, you're not as smart as they think you are. Oh, it's totally, right? And then I'm like, Shelly, literally, I almost slapped myself. Shelly, it's like, get over it. This, you know what this is. This is imposter syndrome. You've been on board. You've been a CEO. Of course you belong in this room. And then you walk in, right? Act like you know what you're doing because eventually I'll figure it out. And if you think about it, for most of us, eventually we figure it out. I wanted to talk about 
life balance. I know you don't like the term. <laughs> I don't like it either. I think, you know, there's no work-life balance, but you still have to make choices and it's always a trade-off. And in the book, for example, you talk about when your family was living in Dallas and you moved to Silicon Valley on your own. So you were, you know, far from family, far, far from, the, from the children. We give a lot into work and especially people, you know, who have like a, you know, full-time job and entrepreneurs and we give everything and there's sometimes can be this overwork culture leading to maybe burnout and stuff. So what's the boundary? How did you manage to go for, you know, such a long time and, and thrive? And I'm sure we don't, you know, we don't see like the, the, the difficult moments. And there's a few in your, in your book, actually. But how did you manage to keep the focus and keep the energy and make these choices quite, quite quickly? Mm, so two things. One, I fortunately learned early about burnout. I was in my late 20s, and at this point, I already had two children, a husband. I'd been promoted a couple times, and I'd just gotten my first nonprofit board seat. So from the outside in, everything's great, right? I mean, Shelly's got it all going on. But I will tell you on the inside, oh my God, I was exhausted, absolutely exhausted. I, I found I was short on energy. At times, I didn't want to get out of bed. And I'm like, wait a minute. If this is what this is all about, then I don't know if I want it, but I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. So fortunately, I actually went to see a psychologist who went to get help. And what I learned through those sessions was I was giving 100% of myself away to everybody else, kids, husband, job, community. And I wasn't doing anything to fill the tank. So I learned the importance of self-care. Now, the good news is, because I learned that, it never happened to me again. So everybody needs to take the time to figure out what they need for self-care. For me, it's three very simple things. I need exercise, regular exercise. Two, I need to eat three meals a day, which sounds a bit ridiculous. Because, of course, everybody eats three meals a day. But most people don't. I don't count a granola bar and a bag of peanuts as lunch, right? So even as a CEO, I brought my lunch to work unless I had a lunch meeting. Why? Not because I couldn't afford to buy lunch, but because I found that if I got busy and I didn't have lunch right there ready for me, I'd just grab something. So instead I brought it to make sure I had something healthy. And then the third thing I need is a couple times a week, I have to interact with people. I get my energy from people, so I need to socialize. And as long as I did those things, I was okay. So the key is all about prioritization. I tell people all the time, when it comes to work-life balance, I cannot stand the term. Because work-life balance is a ridiculous structure. I mean, what is a balance? A balance is a fixed structure that's even on both sides at all times. My life's not fixed. My life's not static. I don't think anybody's is. So why should I be measured on whether or not I'm holding things static? No. Work-life integration is all about taking your personal priorities, your professional priorities. You put them together and then you prioritize ruthlessly, ruthlessly to do what's important. What that's going to mean, there are going to be things you can't do. So you either have to be willing to let go and they don't happen or find somebody else to do them. But that's what trade-offs 
choices are all about is you make the trade-offs and choices that you can do what's important across the spectrum of your life. Thank you, Shelley. I'd like to talk about money and understand if you know money was a driver for you and if it is a driver today. So maybe if we start by, you know, what is money for you? You know, it's interesting. Money for me allows for convenience and comfort. That's really, that's really what money is for me. And in the book, you talk again about your, your mother, <laughs> who maybe not secretly, but she, you know, she started to save money to be able to buy herself a horse, despite not necessarily having a lot of money. And we know that's an exp expensive purchase. What do you think we've, you've learned from this? Because usually we acquire financial habits very young from the age of, you know, maybe three to, to seven. Do you think that had an influence on how you manage your money today or you started managing your, your money when you started working? Oh, definitely. I mean, in our house, money, money was pretty prominent because it was so tight. We all got allowances from as young as I can remember. When dad got paid, everybody got an envelope, including my father. So my mother managed the money. And on payday, we all got an envelope. And in that envelope was our little allowance. And that allowance had to last us till next payday. And there were things that we were responsible to buy and what have you when we we're young. It was just for extra stuff. But as we got older, it was for clothes. It was for this. I mean, we had to manage our own stuff. So I learned early the importance of saving because there weren't really loans in my family. Right? It was, well, do you have it? No. Well, you got to wait. So saving for what it is that you want. Absolutely, I learned. And therefore, I learned the importance of delayed gratification versus instant gratification. So the value of, okay, not doing this today so I can save and do something so much better right later. And I learned the value of basically realizing that, hmm, I can do anything that I, I want to do if I'm willing to make the choices and the trade-offs to actually achieve it. Yes, my mom bought a horse, but you know what? She spent easily four to, four to five hours a day on her sewing machine, making all of us clothes because it was a whole lot cheaper to make clothes and buy fabric than it was to buy clothes. So all those dollars she saved from that went into the horse fund. I mean, so you have to be willing to do the work, right? To be able to make the money and or save the money to get what it is that you want. And that was something that I absolutely learned early. And you think with earning more money over the years and being, you know, in a good financial position, you've changed, you know, your financial habit? <laughs> my son, who, by the way, is 33 years old, uh, my son will still tell you that I'm cheap. <laughs> um, so, you know, did it change my habits? No, I still don't like debt. I still save to, to buy things. And I still pay attention to relative value of what I'm spending things on. So the overall outlook, no. Now, remember I told you that what money brings to me is comfort and convenience. So I will spend money on things that help bring comfort or more convenience, et cetera. But I've had to learn over time, frankly, the value of my time as well. And the fact that it is worth spending money on things based upon the value of my time. So there's things that I've learned and evolved. But I would not say that I have completely changed my outlook. <laughs> Thank you. Do you actually talk about money? Maybe you talk about money with you know, your, your children, your, your partner, people around you. Do you think it's an important topic? 
Oh yes, talking about money is important. I definitely talked about it in terms of with the kids and I'm pretty proud. Both my kids, I think, are, are good with money. They are both savers. They think about budgets, right? And what it is they're doing. If they have a goal of what they're trying to achieve, you know, they work toward it, et cetera. So yes, I think it's important to talk about money. I think it's important to give kids um, accountability and responsibility as it relates to dollars um, and cents so they, get a, so they get an understanding for all that. And even when it comes to life planning, you know, a lot of people don't want to talk about wills and estate planning and, and things like that. But frankly, that's just as important. I put my will together and then I arranged for my kids to have time to talk to the lawyer, right? The estate lawyer, so they can understand here's what this looks like. Here's what this means, right? Here's how it's set up and structured. And now in the workplace, we know women are paid less than men. We know women need to negotiate a salary. That's a difficult topic. What are your top tips in terms of, you know, women be more comfortable to ask for more money and maybe the best, the best strategies? The more you do it, the more comfortable you'll get. It's just like a muscle. It's all about courage and courage is nothing more than a muscle. So what does it take to ask? Just do it. All right, just do it. And, you know, the key is, again, I, I, got, I got lucky in a sense. So when I first was coming out of college and I was getting a job offer from IBM, I had done my budget because, as I said, I was financially astute. I looked at my student loans. I looked at what I thought it would take for um, housing, right, for cars. I mean, just everything. And I put together a budget. So I determined what I thought I needed to make in my job, right? So I'm getting a, a job off from IBM. And frankly, it's less than what I need. Not by a lot, only by like $1,000 a year. Okay, but this is what I need. I had decided what I need and this is what I need. So IBM made me the offer. And I know they have a standard offer for all their, you know, I'm sure graduates, et cetera. So I had to figure out a strategy for how I asked for more. And what I, and I did, I asked for more. And what I said was, you know, I really appreciate this offer. I really want to work for this company, but I've worked on my budget and based upon my student loans and blah, 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 blah. I just say, I shared, here's, here's what I'm trying to do. I said, I really need X amount instead of what you offered me. And I would really appreciate it if you could go fight for me. So what did I do? I asked for their help. What I didn't say is, well, thank you for the job offer, but I can't accept unless you pay me why. That's all I'm doing now is asking for something. No, no, no. What I did instead was I tried to create an environment in which they wanted to help me. I was asking them for help and explaining why it was something that I needed. And you know what? I got it. As a matter of fact, I got more than I asked for. I think mainly because of how I round up. Um, but at any rate, so what I learned though through that is always ask for more. I don't care what the offer is. I always ask for more. I tell my kids the same thing. My daughter was coming out of college and she got a great offer, right? Great offer. She's all excited. Mom, look, da 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 da. We got more than a number of my friends. Da, da, da. And I said, Kathleen, that's wonderful. You have to go back and ask for more. And she was like, what? But mom, I said, no. No, go back and ask for more. The worst they can say is no. And you're in the exact same spot you're in now. All right, now you have to ask the right way, right? Ask the right way. Well, guess what? She got more. All right, so listen, always ask for more. Uh, my, my rule of thumb is they can always pay you 10% more, right? So if you're scared to ask, fine, just ask for 10%. 
But you know what? The way jobs work and the way compounding works, that 10% matters every step of the way. Thank you, Shelley. That's such a good tip and motivation for everyone to really, yeah, ask for more and do it. Can I ask you, what is your definition of success? My definition of success is, am I achieving the milestones towards my goal? Am I getting closer to my goal? And if I'm getting closer to my goal, then those steps represent success. I have now have three quick fire questions. Okay. The first one is your best financial decision ever. Oh, my best financial decision ever was probably just not to get in debt. You know, the only major debt after, after the first car, first car we had to, to borrow, but after that we started saving, you know, to buy. So it was just mortgage, you know, for a long time, the major debt I had was mortgage. And that I think gave me more financial flexibility. And your worst financial decision. I moved around a lot and I bought a house every time we moved. And if I had to do that all over again, I wouldn't have bought a house every time we moved. And what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? Well, right now, planning for vacation. <laughs> It's vacation. I haven't taken vacation in like years. <laughs> so right now, that's where it's going. <laughs> Definitely the best, uh, you know, spending decision also. Shelly, it was such a pleasure to chat to you today. Is there anything else you'd like to share uh, with anyone listening to, to this episode? Yes, my biggest advice is own your career. Realize you are the only one that can optimize for you. Nobody knows you better than you. Your boss doesn't own your career. The company doesn't own it. Your mentor, no, you own it. You would never spend thousands of dollars for an airline ticket, pack your bags, put the dog in the kennel, right? Hold your mail, head to the airport, and then strap in the seatbelt on the plane and look at the pilot and say, so where are we going anyway? We never do that, but we do that with our careers all the time. We spend all this money on education and training and conferences and books and, you know, coaches and all these things to help our career. And then we wait for somebody else to tell us what to do. No, you own your career. So if you need help on how to manage and actually own your career, read my book, Unapologetically Ambitious. Take risks, break barriers and create success on your own terms. I've tried to share how to achieve what you want out of life professionally and personally. And it's really good. I highly recommend it. I've read it and I actually gift it to our intern, Millie, oh, um, because she's very early in her banking career now. She just is starting in banking over the summer. So I'm sure um, it would be amazing for her. It's a book I would have loved to have maybe, you know, 10 years ago, but still so valuable today. We'll share your Instagram, your Twitter and your website, shelley.com in the show notes. Thank you. Shelley, thank you so much uh, for spending uh, this time with me today and uh, have a good day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Wallet. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please do share with a friend or on social media. It also takes two minutes to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcast. And this does really help. Thank you and chat to you next week.